Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the radar means hearing about things you didn't know you needed to know until you hear them. It's a serious look. Hear about the issues that don't get the attention they deserve. Under the radar doesn't get caught up in the day-to-day. Surfacing issues that are not talked about in mainstream media. I think it's something that connects us to each other. Under the radar is all about discovery. I can be guaranteed voices I haven't heard before. But also the questions. Under the radar is one step ahead. I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, Earlier this year, the Democratic Party broke with decades of tradition, approving South Carolina, not New Hampshire, as the first state to vote in the 2024 presidential primary. Now that New Hampshire has declared it will still hold a first vote, who wins? Plus, nitrogen pollution in the ponds and waterways of Cape Cod is leading to a buildup of algae with brand new regulations approved to curb it. Towns that don't comply by designing and implementing solutions could leave homeowners with big septic bills. And a Rhode Island official is under fire after his casual sexist and racist comments were revealed. It's our regional news roundtable. Later in the show, move over clam bakes. Plenty of New Englanders are firing up their smokers and grills for the smoked deliciousness that is barbecue. Just because you smother it in barbecue sauce does not make it barbecue. Ribs, brisket, chicken, sausages, and more. Barbecue is an all-American summertime favorite and the tasty subject of the latest edition of our Summer Fun series. But first, joining me remotely, Arnie Arneson, host of The Attitude with Arnie Arneson on WNHN. Welcome, Arnie. It's a pleasure to be back. Ted Nisi, politics and business editor and investigative reporter for WPRI in Rhode Island. Hi, Ted. Hi, great to be here. And Steve Junker, managing editor of news at CAI, the Cape, Coast, and Islands affiliate of GBH. Hello, Steve. Hi, Callie. Great to have you. I'm going to start with you, Ted, because, boy, I tell you, Rhode Island, y'all love uh, misbehaving politicians. <laughs> <laughs> I just have to say it. Um, so there was a trip to Philadelphia. And it blew up into something totally different uh, because of the people representing Rhode Island. I'll let you take it from there. Yeah, and I will try to keep it concise, but boy, you're you're not kidding, Callie. This one has spun all over the place. So uh, like a lot of places, Rhode Island has a big uh, providence, has a big old underused armory. The National Guard used to be in there, but uh, it's been vacant for a good 20 years or so. And the state's still trying to figure out what to do with this big old hulk of a building. So when Gina Raimondo was still the governor of Brown, she picked a consulting firm out of Philadelphia to redevelop it. Uh, Now that's been inherited by the current governor, Dan McKee, who's a little more skeptical of the project. Well, he sent down two of his top staffers, uh, the head of the administration department and the state properties director to Philly to meet with this contractor, this developer, because they have a similar project there. And they, the properties director in particular just behaved outrageously, according to an email that uh, the consulting firm sent to the governor's office via their lobbyist two days later. He made sexist remarks. He made uh, ethnically insensitive remarks. He was asking for free stuff. He um, 
They made the people open a restaurant that doesn't open for lunch to serve them lunch and took it. Um, it just 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 to give one example, the flavor of it, uh, the, the according to this company, when the state properties director got there and saw the woman who was leading their tour from this consulting firm, he said something along the lines of, if I'd known your husband was out of town, I would have come last night um, and commented <sighs> on all sorts of things like that the whole time. So. Uh, then the governor's office tried to keep the email a secret about my station and the local uh, daily, the Providence Journal, both filed public records complaints and finally forced the governor's office to release the email documenting their behavior. And since then, it spun out, you know, there's an ethics commission investigation into the free stuff that they took. Um, there is a state police investigation into whether there's anything criminal. The properties director resigned. The other guy had already resigned. He's taking criticism because he didn't intervene in any way to do anything. And it's been a, a pretty colossal embarrassment for Rhode Island uh, because it's made the Washington Post, the New York Times, the Philadelphia Inquirer has had a field day. They um, had an opinion columnist who wrote something saying, uh, well, you've made your demands of us. Now here are our demands of you, Rhode Island. And one of them was that Rhode Island, since it's not actually an island, should change its name to Teeny Tiny Chusets, um, <laughs> oh, oh my among, God. among other things. So people have had some fun with it, but it has also just been a real black eye in terms of how state state officials behave. Of course, many people are saying this is a crazy and bizarre incident and not reflective of something larger, but uh, between the sort of, uh, sort of mocking attention it's gotten and then the spin out effects of here, it's been quite a story. Well, let's listen to governor, the governor of Rhode Island, Dan McKee, uh, expressing his dismay about the two officials' conduct. The behavior, is, if true, is, is uh, you know, was, certainly is, a, is something that is not becoming of anybody that's uh, working with the state or thinks that they're going to continue working with the state. I think he should have been a little bit more outraged. I, I just, just as I was listening to this, I wrote down, they checked all the boxes off for how to be a jerk. Well, that's Arnie's take on it. Steve, what's yours? Oh, so and upset. and before so you upset. say anything, Steve, I just want this other quote uh, from the emails. Uh, one of them said, you have three hours to convince us to give you $55 million. Whoa. Oh. I, I think like many people just watching this with my jaw hanging open and uh, feeling like it, one part of it sounds like a Will Ferrell comedy and another part mm -hmm. is just so terrible to listen to. And I grew up in Philadelphia, which gives it an hmm. extra spice a little to my appreciation for the story. I guess I was wondering, Ted, I know you guys had to, to you know, fight to get these emails public. How much is there a sense of the administration, you know, dragging their feet in dealing with this? Or is this investigation for real or is it, you know, a bit of a show? Well, I think, uh, you know, the criminal and ethics investigations are effectively independent of the governor's office, ones with the state police, ones with the Independent Ethics Commission. Um, but, you know, the governor certainly took some criticism for, you know, as Arnie said, uh, hmm. not necessarily sounding outraged Thank at you. first. He he would he repeatedly said, I can't say anything. The lawyers have yeah. said I can't say anything. The lawyers say I can't say anything. Um, and, you know, he's also been defensive of the second official who was there, who he's been he's known for a long time, arguing that he didn't do anything wrong just because he didn't intervene and stop the other fellow from making all these remarks and taking the free stuff. Um, but the governor's, you know, sort of pivoted to a, a stronger, you know, criticism of what was in there and argued that he, his hands had been tied up until the guy resigned by his lawyers. Um, but, you know, the governor himself has now wound up with an ethics complaint filed against him because in the course of all the reporting on this, it was discovered that he 
uh, as these people were trying to get a hearing from the governor's team for their project, because again, this governor inherited it from the last governor, um, they finally got in front of him by uh, going to lunch with him and the lobbyists they have hired at the Capitol Grill in Providence, a famous political watering hole. And the governor left before paying his bill and the lobbyists picked up the tab and never invoice the campaign, which violates could violate ethics rules if the governor, uh, the head of Common Cause said it all depends if the governor had the $24 Cobb salad or the $39 ribeye because $25 <laughs> is the ethics tax. Oh, no. uh, the governor Jeez. said that was a mix up. They forgot the campaign credit card and, and they've, they're they going to pay him back, but he's got his own problem. So it's just, it's just been a colossal, kind of like Callie set it up. A, a, it feels like a bit of a classic Rhode Island crazy yeah. scandal where the reporters are saying to ourselves, like, we couldn't make this stuff up. All right, over to you, Steve. Um, there are these new state regulations to fight nitrogen pollution, which is connected to the algae. Put it all together for us. Okay, I'm going to start uh, even further up the chain, which is to say that the Cape has a bathroom problem, which <laughs> yes. is not to be <laughs> indelicate here. Yeah. But every time a toilet is flushed, more often than not, that's going into the ground and running through the Cape sandy soil and impacting a nearby waterway. Cape wow. has no sewers, essentially, you know, uh, for, for much of the Cape. So those nutrients are flowing into bays and estuaries where they create environmental problems. Uh, Cape has 15 towns from one end to the other, and each one has its own wastewater, uh, you know, agenda. The state has been on them to try to solve this issue. And the state is finally fed up that it's taken so long. So they came up with these new regulations in, in part to attempt to push this forward quickly, but also because, you know, uh, while a lot of this sounds like the background noise of environmental policy, these new regulations really tie a direct cost to homeowners for the first time. And I think that served the purpose of getting people's attention. Individual homeowners could be on the hook for a could be $25,000 or $30,000 mandatory upgrades to their septic systems if the towns don't comply with these regulations. So uh, it's really made everybody sit up and pay attention suddenly. And, and these regulations go into effect on Friday and uh, of the week here that we're in. And the towns essentially have five years to come up with plans to significantly reduce all this runoff from uh, from the non-sewer systems that we have here. And uh, it's a big cost for towns. So like, for instance, Barnstable, one of the big towns here, is a proposal to actually sewer much of the town. It's a billion dollar proposal to try to build wow. sewer. And that's just one of these 15 towns. So the state essentially saying there's no one size fits all solution. They're not you know, mandating a, a solution here. They're saying to the towns, you come up with solutions, we'll certify it. But if you don't, there will be penalties for homeowners. And homeowners don't want to hear that. And listen, this is what the Conservation Law Center, um, this is how they describe the how nutrogen pollution threatens Cape Cod's waterways. All of the nitrogen pollution that's coming from septic tanks, it just seeps right into the water and it causes these bays and estuaries to be overgrown and to choke out the life that's that's there. And that's so critical to our, our whole circle of life. Anytime you visit the Cape, the one of the number one conversations is all about preserving the health of those septic tanks. If you've ever rented anywhere on the Cape, there's that's the discussion. So um, definitely septic tanks and the impact on them is something that uh, homeowners and uh, those who rent uh, pay quite close attention to. So I know this will be getting their attention. The state has this 
Title V septic rule that, you know, everything has to be up to this certain uh, quality standard, but the new regulations are saying that's not enough. And that's why this additional cost would come to home homeowners. Even if you have a brand new septic system put in last year, you would have to upgrade it by this, you know, additional $25,000 wow. next step if these regulations go into effect. Arnie, I've known restaurants to have to close down because of uh, the septic tank issues. So, this is scary to think about. Well, I, and I, I wrote down the word, the two words I wrote down, Steve, was toxic cocktail. And the reason I write that is, is that you talk about the fact that because of the pandemic, a lot of people wanted to move to the Cape. And then we look at the climate crisis, which is heating up everything. But if everyone's moving to the Cape and they don't have enough septic systems, then what we know is those nutrients are now like going into that sandy soil. I mean, it's like everything is working against them simultaneously, which is, I think, one of the reasons why they had to now make homeowners wake up and smell the coffee, because this algae bloom is not only is it sort of obnoxious, but it's dangerous. And the one line in one of the articles was, it's one of the most toxic natural substances known to man. Oh my God. So it's a, the consequences are enormous in a way that a lot of people don't necessarily connect the dots. But when you do, and since the Cape is a place where you wanna go sort of be outdoors and, and marvel at the water, look what's happening as a result of not addressing this sooner. And uh, the timing is awful because if we don't do it quickly, it'll just get so much worse. Like it or not, we are in a climate change crisis, um, and and that's here's one of the results. It's really pretty scary. Uh, you know what else is scary? Uh, if you follow politics and are want your if you're and you're a Democrat and would like your primaries to be a little less dramatic, it looks like they're going to be dramatic. So as we said earlier this year, the Democratic Party decided that South Carolina, not New Hampshire, which has trad traditionally been the first 2024 primary, uh, should go first. But that's created all kinds of mess and because New Hampshire is still going to have its own primary. So, Arnie, how messy is this? <laughs> oh, my goodness. So that it's like it's beyond messy. So Ross Barkin of The New York Times called me about maybe three or four weeks ago and said, so let's talk about the fact that New Hampshire has lost its first the nation presidential primary. I said, well, the DNC has said that, but the state law in New Hampshire has not said that. And the problem is this is not a primary, the Democratic presidential primary that's run by the DNC. It is officially run by the secretary of state in my state. And as a result, we have a law that says we must be first. We must be a week before any anybody else. So when the DNC made this decision to reward South Carolina and make South Carolina first on February 3rd and then New Hampshire and Nevada on February 6th, that might have been fine for the DNC, but it doesn't work in New Hampshire. And let me also remind you that even if we wanted to change it, the Democrats have no capacity to change it because the Republicans control the executive branch and the legislative branch, and they're not going to change the law because they know they make us miserable. And, uh, and also, as a result, you've got the Republicans. This is the most important part of the story, Callie, the Republicans have the same old lineup. They start in Iowa with the caucus. They then go to New Hampshire with the primary. So now you see all the July 4th parades where, you know, you have Pence in Iowa and you have DeSantis doing the July 4th parade in New Hampshire. And the Democrats are missing in action. And they're not only missing in action because they're going to be starting in South Carolina. Did Joe Biden walk into the 4th of July parade in South Carolina? I don't think he did. Anyway, so as a result, all this attention, all the conversation is on one side of the aisle. And the Democrats have no ability to offer an alternative message except... There are two people who are going to acknowledge New Hampshire's first in nation presidential primary, and that's RFK Jr., who is now so off the 
sanity uh, spectrum, and then Marianne Williamson, that what is really frightening here is that the Democrats who are going to be forced to vote in a primary where Joe Biden will not be on the ticket are going to have to make a choice, not show up, allow RFK Jr. to get 40% of the vote, give something to Marianne Williamson, write something in, but then it can't be acknowledged, and you can't get enough of a write-in effect because Joe Biden will not show up here. So to a large extent, they made the right decision. New Hampshire probably should not maintain its first-in-the-nation presidential status. We're too white, we're too rich, we're too privileged. Yes, South Carolina represents a significant change because it has such a large uh, African-American population. It also has the lowest union population in the United States. But to have made the change before 2024 was a mistake. Well, and that's funny. I've been thinking about this as a reporter, not in New Hampshire, but near enough New Hampshire that we cover the primary there a lot. You know, it's going to be hard to explain to casual news consumers Thank you. that they're, you know, here in Rhode Island when, they, oh, well, I'm, yes, the New Hampshire primary is happening like always, but no, it doesn't matter. Why? Well, Joe Biden said so. And he also lost. Well, no, that's <laughs> not the reason. But, you know, like, I, I understand the travel you just went through and all political junkies do, but you know, the White House has created a colossal PR problem, especially for a president who we see Democrats, I think a majority in a lot of polls don't want him to run again. So for him to then go and lose what the average person in America who follows politics at all thinks is one of the big crowns, uh, I just, I think it's going to be quite a mess for them next next winter. Steve, what do you think? I almost would push back a little bit on that, Ted, and wonder, uh, you know, the average person who doesn't think about this until the primary pops up in their own state, how much this is going to resonate or not. And I don't know what the answer is, because Massachusetts, we often come late enough in the game that we don't feel like we're, you know, we're right in the middle of the thicket there. So, uh, but I am curious to know how it plays for people who who aren't leaning into the political discourse all the time, the way some of us are. I think that's a really good, valid point, because I, I know most people don't know there's two, two firsts now. <laughs> they just don't uh, well, know that. That, that, that's your, that, that. That's the story right there, Kelly. They don't know. Historically, it's been Iowa and New Hampshire forever, forever. Mm -hmm. And the Republicans are still showing up forever. And so no one knows. South Carolina, nobody meant got the memo from the DNC. Oh, by the way, Joe Biden's starting in South Carolina. So what it looks like is, is that there's no presence here. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and I'm speaking with Arnie Arneson, host of The Attitude with Arnie Arneson on WNHN, Ted Nisi, politics and business editor for WPRI, and Steve Junker, managing editor of news at CAI. We're talking about the latest news that matters to New England. Well, I will say that this is going to be a very interesting uh, political case because what they have to do clearly is figure out how to have some presence in the state without upending their decision to go to South Carolina first. Now, speaking of that, however, Ted, <laughs> in your place, 35 people have declared <laughs> for what was uh, former Congressman David Cicilline's seat. Um yeah, it's just mind-boggling. Here's a little clip from WPRI talking about uh, another candidate announcing their bid to replace him. Former Providence State Rep Aaron Regenberg just announced his run for Rhode Island's first congressional seat. He is now the 10th Democratic candidate running to replace outgoing Congressman David Cicilline. No Republicans have joined the race. Okay, so that was, you know, <laughs> many, many moons ago and more people got in. But as you've made clear, most of these people don't have a chance even. 
No, I think it's it's sort of, you know, it's like a branding opportunity, I think, for a lot of these folks. You know, and, you know, you have 35 candidates, 22 of them are in the Democratic primary. And this is a deep blue district. This is the uh, eastern side of Rhode Island, uh, close to the Massachusetts border. So, uh, you know, we expect the Democratic primary winner will almost certainly win the seat in the general uh, special election. And so I think a lot of folks you know, first of all, if you're a current office holder, you don't have to give up your current office because it's a special election. So we have like state senators running while keeping their current seat. It's a free pass, a lot of political analysts call it. Then you have the fact that it's rare for a congressional seat to turn over in Rhode Island. So a lot of people worry if they don't take their chance now, you know, they might miss their shot. And then there's no super strong candidate uh, who, you know, is kind of clearing the field or has so much money uh, that everyone says, ah, this is, this is an uphill battle. So you have 22 Democrats have filed, and I would argue you could make the case for eight of them at least mm-hmm. being at least somewhat credible, you know, having a real organization, spending real money, et cetera. And, you know, some of the ones past my eight would probably say they might have an argument too, and I, I might listen to that. So, um, on, and all this at the same time, the voters are just not paying a lot of attention because it's a special election, it's midsummer, uh, you know, they're, they they don't know who most of these people are. Um, so I, it reminds me a lot as a reporter of when I covered uh, the Massachusetts fourth district race to replace Joe Kennedy back in 2020, which was totally overshadowed by the Joe Kennedy Ed Markey U.S. Senate race. And, you know, I remember chasing Jake Auchincloss and Jesse Mermel and Becky Grossman around the South Coast mm-hmm. as they tried to get any voters to pay attention. And Jake Auchincloss won that primary with 23% of the vote. Now he's a congressman. I don't even know if the winner of this primary is going to need 23 percent in Rhode Island. So just to be clear, there are four Republicans and nine independents included in that 35 and 22 Democrats. Yes. Um, how can you know, we can barely remember the names of the people who are who've been holding office forever and ever. So uh, is it going to be money? Is that going to be the difference that, you know, who whoever can control the ad space? Get out the vote. Get out the vote. They're going to look at their sphere. I mean, having run for Congress myself, it's like you're looking at your sphere of influence. And with 35 people, while there may not be a big turnout, they also have extended family members and workers. And they're going to they're going to call everyone they know and get them to the polls because money isn't going to really, I think, pierce the veil here. It's really going to be GOTV. And my question to you, Ted, is so exactly how do you do a debate? With that uh-huh. many people, I mean, it sounds like more like a Greek chorus than a debate. Well, you know, it's I'm no, just, it's, trying to imagine it. I mean, Channel Twelve, we're known for our debates here at WPRI. Yes. We're proud of it, and um, you know, for one thing, we this is not a joke. We have already talked about borrowing podiums from our sister stations in other states oh. <laughs> because we don't own enough to I have as many people as might qualify. Our company sets nationwide standards for kind of minimum thresholds to make debates, but certainly many of these candidates I would think will qualify under our um, company's rules. Um, my concern is honestly less, you know, how we stage it to have so many people on stage. It's to have a format that gives the the voters anything that, yes. you know, I I uh, Stonehill College had me moderate their fourth district debate in 2020, uh, the one I was just talking about, and we had to split the candidates over two hours on Zoom, which is fine, but you're asking the voters to do a two-hour Zoom. They don't get to see everybody head-to-head. Um, I just think there's no great answer when you're asking the voters to judge that many people all at once. It's tough. Also, the Republicans, as we know, uh, during the first year of Trump, um, split it over Two nights. And it's just very difficult. But I do believe that it's that's our responsibility to figure it out, that 
you know, folks shouldn't just be kicked off because it's too many. Yeah, someone, uh, one person on online suggested to me that we do it more like Survivor and we do it like every Exactly, week. that's what we I was vote, thinking. We vote someone off the island every week throughout August, you know, so we're, we'll look at that. Uh, now, when actually is the is the vote? The primary is September 5th. Um, as I said, that's likely to be decisive because it's such a Democratic district. But then the final, final vote will be in November. They kind of they did keep it, the officials on the sort of the normal even year schedule for Rhode Island elections, which is helping a little, I think, for people to understand what's going on. But uh, it is just a lot. And honestly, for reporters, it's a lot of candidates to keep track of. Everyone's trying to get articles and, you know, putting out endorsements and putting out videos. And, you know, you get four of them each morning and you're like, which one should I cover? So it's 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 quite a... It's quite a thing. Um, Steve, what do you think? Uh, well, the declared candidates list is longer than the class list for my seventh grade son's class. <laughs> the, how much are these are declared candidates, but they have to get over another bar before they they're in the race. Is that right? Yep. And that's a great point, Steve. A, a good one to bring up the fact they have to collect 500 validated signatures by July 14th. I do think that will whittle down our 35 um, but again, I, I think even if we're only only quote unquote talking about 12 Democrats on the primary ballot, but if you know more than a half dozen of them are somewhat serious, uh, that's still a lot. Um, even if we whittle down some of the marginal ones uh, because they don't collect enough signatures, it's it's going to be quite something. And the other thing that's interesting, very little activity from them. You know, they're running around, as Arnie says, doing get out the vote, et cetera. But yeah. only one candidate's aired TV ads and, and really a minor buy to get the headline, I think. Um, and, I, you know, I know people hate hearing the focus on money and TV ads and stuff, but we all know it matters. And I've been a little surprised not to see somebody try to establish some early advantage there. If you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. And here with me are Arnie Arneson, host of The Attitude with Arnie Arneson on WNHN, Ted Nisi, politics and business editor for WPRI, and Steve Junker, managing editor of news at CAI on the Cape. We're discussing the major stories in the Boston region. There must be somebody who already believes they can just sort of lie low get all their signatures and then come out swinging right before September 5th, because I'm telling you, that's just a terrible time. People are just not focused, you know. Plus, with early voting, uh, which is now the the rule in Rhode Island, the first votes will be cast only in a little over a month. So it's even wow. closer. Exactly. Yeah. All right. Well, let me switch to something that is also a function of climate change and um, an ongoing concern across the country, and that's... Um, uh, what happens to people who uh, need shelter from the heat? You know, that's something we've been looking at across the country, usually in the south and, you know, southwest. But it gets very hot as it is around here. Um, this past week has been, you know, 90, 90, 90, 90 with a lot of humidity. So these Vermonters living outside uh, are really caught bet betwixt and between, Arnie. Um, there are plans for them somewhat. There's no perfect plan anyway that I, that I know of um, to sort of protect them during colder months. That's what Vermont, you know, is known for. But because of this shift in climate change and the way that the heat patterns are going, it's bad. And nobody has really thought about what happens to these vulnerable people when the heat is extreme. 
Well, this isn't just a Vermont story. You know that it's Vermont. It's a New England story because, you know, we've and in some ways we're we're going to escape some of the real extremes of, of the climate crisis. But clearly it has gotten significantly hotter. There is no question about it. But then factor in, Callie, what happened with the Canadian fires? So now you've got the fires and they're telling you, well, go inside, put on your AC, avoid being outside. But if you're homeless, where do you go? So you've got heat and smoke pollution that is now the combination. And I used to volunteer at a homeless shelter. Our homeless shelter shut down at the end of April. Well, now, where do you go where what you have to do again is escape the outdoors? The outdoors is now becoming the enemy. I mean, we're seeing stories out of Texas with the incredible heat and what's happening with construction workers. We're learning about India not being able to actually harvest anymore because people can't work in the fields. Well, these are the homeless who are the most vulnerable. And where do they go? We've never prepared for this. And I was talking to a friend who said, yes, they do need AC. They need a place. And then she said to me, but I need AC, too. So here's the other problem. A lot of people in New England never had air conditioning. And so all of a sudden they have to make that investment in getting AC, on top of which we have some of the highest electric costs in the country. So as we're worried about the homeless, we're also looking at people who are incredibly vulnerable, who may have a home, but may not be able to cool themselves. This is the challenge. And I think the homeless are the canary in the coal mine. Vermont's trying to figure out what to do, but um, there aren't a lot of options right now. And you, you, know, you can only go to a library so often. You can only go to a, what may be a cooling shelter, but understand that you know when you're homeless and you've been outdoors and you come in and you smell and you haven't taken a shower in a couple of weeks and whatever, people are in the library are looking at you going, Okay, now what? So uh, I think it's 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 a tragedy, but one we have to prepare for swiftly because it's going to impact all of us if it hasn't already. Yeah, I think we're going to see a lot of that going on. Um, have you seen what have you seen on the Cape, Steve? Well, you're you're right, Arnie. That so much of the energy around you know interacting with homeless people is focused on the winter. It's New England. We're yes. all all of our advocacy groups kind of focus on the those cold months, and now here we are thinking about a whole new topic. And uh, and you make me also think about around the region here and in Massachusetts. We've had such a big push for uh, heat pumps, converting people's. <laughs> You know, what used to be oil heat here into mm -hmm. uh, mini pump, mini splits, they're called, or heat pumps. And the state has a lot of incentives around that. One of the things these things do is they not only heat your house, they can cool your house, too. They work both ways. So it may be that we're moving into a time when having air conditioning, which even here on the Cape used to be kind of unusual, is now much more the norm for, for most people. But that doesn't well, I, particularly help folks who are unhoused right now. I had the exactly. same thought, Steve. I mean, I, you know, I went to school in Attleboro, Mass, and we didn't have air conditioning for the most part in the schools I went to. But as we slowly built new schools, they got air conditioning. I mean, I guess partly because it used to be like, deal with it, kid. But then also, uh, we just have a lot more hot days. I, I, I was talking to a teacher friend of mine who said, when it gets so hot now, sometimes in May, I mean, we're losing a month of instruction time because nobody can focus in these yes. un schools. And let me just mention the prisons. Please let me mention the prisons because I've been studying what's been going on in Texas with the prisons where it's already 110 outside. Imagine being in a prison that you can't leave, a prison where there isn't any airflow and there isn't any AC and they're saying, well, they don't need AC. Well, no, what you created is an oven, not a prison, an oven. And that's true too. So you're talking about the schools, but at least the kids are out in the summer. What about our prisons? Again, we have homeless, we have prisons. All these things are going to demand that we're going to have to rethink it is not accommodating them to make them comfortable. It's helping them survive. 
I also think it's a changing mindset about thinking about heat in the way that we've thought about being protective against uh, cold. And I will just add a personal note that uh, last year in those horrible, in the horrible uh, heat sweep uh, in the Midwest, I lost a friend um, in an apartment complex because the heat was still on, you know, as it had been scheduled for years and years and years at a certain time to go off. And then, you know, outside, however, things were different. And so three people in the building died and she was one of them. So this is a very, very real, as you say, um, Arnie, not just for the most vulnerable above, uh, uh, among us, but also everybody else. So we got to pay attention. And sad to say, I will have to leave it there on that note, but I appreciate all of you joining me. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Kelly. Arnie Arneson is host of The Attitude with Arnie Arneson on WNHN. Ted Nisi is the politics and business editor and investigative reporter for WPRI in Rhode Island. And Steve Junker is the managing editor of news at CAI, the Cape Coast and Islands affiliate of GBH. Coming up, its origins are in the South, but barbecue is becoming a staple in the Northeast. And right now, as the summertime backyard barbecuists haul out their grills, it's the perfect time for a barbecue aficionado like me to clear up the rampant regional confusion about what real barbecue is. Achieving the tangy, spicy, smoky yumminess is a tradition, a culture, and a methodology that is much more than simply putting meat on a grill. We talk all things barbecue in this latest edition of our Summer Fun Series. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley.